Uh, we're going to be talking about King Jesus from Matthew chapter 21. If you brought your Bible, you can feel free, please, to turn to Matthew chapter 21. We'll like a, look at the first 11 verses. The idea of kingship is not something that we in America think an awful lot about. We haven't had to worry about a king in this country since King George III in the 1700s at the time of the American Revolution. In this country, we have no idea what it would mean to live under the rule and the reign of a sovereign king. But Americans seem to be endlessly fascinated with all things British royalty. Kings and queens and all things royal. <clears throat> I have to admit, I'm kind of interested. Uh, Elizabeth and I um, really enjoyed the series The Crown. How many of you saw The Crown? Okay, six of you, good. <laughs> you also, you six, enjoyed it. No, there were more than that. Uh, it's, um, and now there's a, a, a ton of interest in the relationship between Harry and Meghan and the rest of the family. Um, everybody seems to have an opinion on it. The royal that Americans know the most about is Queen Elizabeth II, in Britain, mainly because she's the only queen that any of us have ever known in our lifetime. She reigned for 70 years. But Queen Elizabeth and now King Charles are not absolute monarchs. They are constitutional monarchs, so they have to live within a constitutional structure. They don't have absolute power. Today we're going to look at another king, a king whose reign far exceeds any other king. We're going to talk about King Jesus. Today, uh, the Sunday before Easter, Christians all over the world recognize what we know as Palm Sunday. It's the event marking the arrival of Jesus into Jerusalem, the event known as the Triumphal Entry, which is the beginning of the Holy Week or the Passion Week. This is the final week of Jesus' earthly life. There's only 11 verses in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, and it takes less than a minute to read, but they are just loaded with historic and prophetic and eternal significance. So let's read the section this morning. Matthew 21, verse, starting in verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. 
And the crowds that went before them and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, I want us to notice three main characteristics concerning Jesus as king. The question this morning is this. What kind of king is Jesus? The first point is implied in in verse 1. Number one, Jesus is resolute and sacrificial. Jesus is resolute and sacrificial. Verse 1, now when they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage, or Bethphage, or in Cleveland, Bethphage. (laughs) To the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples. Now, that might seem like a fairly straightforward sentence. It might not seem very significant. Jesus drew near to Jerusalem. Jesus went a lot of places. He went all around Galilee. He went to Capernaum. He went to all the cities and villages and did his teaching and preaching and healing. And he drew near to Jerusalem. There's a lot of reasons why that's significant. The main reason is that Jesus knew full well what would happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. Jesus knew exactly what was waiting for him. He knew that his life was going to end in a horrific and excruciating and grievous way. And if I knew all that was awaiting me in Jerusalem, I'd probably run the other way. I'd probably be like Jonah and get the first boat going to Tarshish. But Jesus also knew it was absolutely necessary for him to go to Jerusalem. Not for his sake, but for your sake and for my sake. And for the sake of every human being who's ever drawn a breath. He knew that there was no way for you or for anyone to be saved from certain judgment after death. Apart from his going to Jerusalem and enduring his painful death. When Jesus rode into Jerusalem, it was a triumphal entry. We call it that because many people recognized him as the king, the coming Messiah. But it was also an ominous entry that the people didn't recognize until the events actually unfolded. But Jesus knew what was coming. He knew what was coming because this was the plan. This was the plan all along. He needed to do this. This was the central part of God's divine plan to redeem mankind. Because of man's sin and their separation from God, it was the eternal plan of God to send his son to be our redeemer, to be our Messiah, to be our savior to shed his blood for our sin, to forgive sinners, and to bring us to himself. We find the very first prophecy of all this back in Genesis chapter 3, the first book of the Bible. And there were many pictures or foreshadows 
throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the coming of this suffering Messiah. Jesus knew he was that Messiah that would lay down his life for us. In fact, he started telling his disciples about it way before it actually happened. He prophesied about his coming death and resurrection back in Matthew 12, verse 40. Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. In chapter 16, Simon Peter makes the important confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Then in verse 21 to 23, it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Chapter 17, verse 9, after the transfiguration where Jesus showed his divine glory to Peter, James, and John, Jesus says, Tell no one the vision until... The Son of Man is raised from the dead. Later in verses 22 to 23, as they were gathering in Jerusalem, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Chapter 20, verses 17 to 19. And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Chapter 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then in chapter 26, verses 1 to 2, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Jesus knew what was coming in Jerusalem. And he knew why he came to this earth. He knew that by his death and his resurrection, he would provide the only ground, the only way for sinners to be saved. No death and resurrection, no forgiveness and no salvation. Only judgment. In his his humanness, The thought of what he was going to do, the thought of going to the cross, and his sin-bearing sacrifice caused him intense agony, where he sweat drops of blood. 
but he knew that his death, his burial and resurrection was the most crucial piece, the very heart of God's redemptive plan. And nothing was going to stop him. Not fear, not the fear of his disciples, not anything. Time after time in the prior years, he told his disciples that his time had not yet come. But now Jesus knew that the hour had come to lay down his life for the redemption of sinners. It was time to go to Jerusalem. Jesus was resolute and sacrificial. Second, King Jesus is omniscient and sovereign. Omniscient and sovereign. The end of verse 1, Then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Jesus not only knew what was coming because of his omniscience, because he's all-knowing, but he was firmly in control because of his divine authority and sovereignty. He sent his disciples to go to the village up ahead. He knew exactly what they would find. He knew what was going to be there when when they got there. He was divinely in control. There would be a donkey and her young colt tied up there as soon as they entered. Mark's and Luke's Gospels add that no one had ever sat on the colt. It makes sense that he would tell them to bring the colt and the mother. It would reassure and calm the young colt in the middle of a noisy crowd. Go and get them. And if anyone tells you, why are you taking them, tell them the Lord needs them. And notice that he didn't say your Lord or our Lord or whatever, a Lord. He said the Lord needs them. This was a self-reference to his own lordship. It's a direct reference to his divine authority and sovereignty. Jesus knew who he was, and he knew where he came from. And when you tell them that, they'll send them at once. He knew all about what was going to happen. Many times in his divinity, Jesus demonstrated his omniscience, that he's all-knowing, when he knew what couldn't be known otherwise. He knew what people were thinking. He knew what was in people's hearts. He knew things that would happen. He knew other things that would have happened if the circumstances were different. And his omniscience is also intensely personal for us. It's wonderfully comforting and reassuring that Jesus knows everything. Jesus knows all about everything in your life. He knows if you are healthy. He knows if and when you get sick. He knows if you're doing well and keeping your job. He knows if you're laid off, if you're fired. 
He knows all of your difficulties and all of your challenges. He knows all of your hopes and he knows all of your joys. And he knows how every detail of all of those things is going to work out because he knows everything and he is divinely in control. And that's tremendously comforting and reassuring to us. And because God is also perfect in his goodness, because he loves you with an everlasting love, and because he is perfectly wise in everything he does, because he cares for you always, you can trust him. You can lean on him, and he will help you. He'll lovingly walk with you through everything, giving you grace, giving you comfort and strength. The psalmist says in Psalm 121, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. He made heaven and earth. He is able and he will help you. Jesus is resolute and sacrificial. Jesus is omniscient and he's sovereign. Third, King Jesus is humble and reigning. Jesus is humble and reigning. Now truly, God has always been king. There has never been a moment in all of eternity when God wasn't king. He created everything, and he sovereignly rules over every inch of his creation. Psalm 47 says, For the Lord the Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. For God is the king of all the earth. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. God is king, and his kingdom includes the whole earth. But here we see Jesus very clearly and very publicly announcing his kingship. It's his public coronation as king. But in this context, Jesus' kingdom is not Jerusalem or Israel or the physical earth per se. His kingdom here and now is not visible. His kingdom is worldwide, but he said his kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is spiritual. It's made up of all of those who listen to his voice, who trust him as their savior and as their Lord and their king by faith. And all who trust in Jesus for their salvation all over the world submit to King Jesus as Lord. And later in the week, when Jesus was falsely accused and arrested, Pilate, the governor of Judea, asked Jesus very plainly in John chapter 18. He said, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. They would have been protecting me. But my kingdom is not from the world. 
Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. An important question for every believer is, do you listen to his voice? Do you listen to his voice? If you are a child of God, a citizen of God's kingdom, do you submit to the king? Or are there sizable parts of your life where you are still firmly on the throne, where you stubbornly hold on to your own lordship? I know God says this, but I'm going to do that. At the transfiguration, God said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Submit to his lordship. It's for your good. It's for your thriving. It's for your greater joy. It is for his glory. It's the joy of every redeemed believer to submit to our good and loving Savior and King. It's our joy. So Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem is the coronation of King Jesus. But it was completely unlike any other coronation. King Charles' coronation is coming up on May 6th. How many of you are planning to watch this? Wow, none. Like, none. He is not a popular guy in the U.S. On June 2, 1953, Queen Elizabeth II's coronation took place in Westminster Abbey when she was 27 years old. And it was a huge spectacle. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh were driven from Buckingham Palace to Westminster Abbey in the gold-plated state coach pulled by eight huge horses. On her way to the coronation, Elizabeth wore the George IV state crown. It was crafted in 1820, and the crown is decorated with 1,333 diamonds, and 169 pearls. 129 nations and territories were officially represented at the coronation service. And thousands upon thousands of people lined the streets to watch the procession. It was the first coronation to be televised, and 27 million people in the UK watched the ceremony on television and 11 million listened on the radio. A little under 30,000 men took part in the procession from all branches of the military. It's quite the pageantry. It's what you might expect from the coronation of a king or queen, right? It's quite a contrast from Jesus' coronation. He had none of that and for good reason. 
Jesus arrived in Jerusalem as pilgrims from Galilee and all other parts of Israel were arriving for, for the annual celebration of the Passover. And that's also enormously significant. The timing was no coincidence. Later that week, Jesus himself would be the final fulfillment of the whole picture of the Passover when he was crucified. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. If you want to know more about all that intricate planning and all the details and how they all fit together, come to the seminar tonight. Patrick will lay out all of that for the whole Passion Week. It's fascinating. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a young donkey. And the people, no doubt, expected Jesus to be their new king, to overthrow the oppressive Roman rule that they were living under. But they misunderstood the situation. If Jesus was intending to communicate that he was going to be coming in to overthrow Roman rule and to come as a conquering king and to set up his own kingdom, he would not have ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey. He would have ridden in on a war horse, and he would have had troops behind him. He would have arranged for all the pageantry of a real coronation. He didn't ride into Jerusalem with a crown filled with hundreds of diamonds on his head. The only crown he wore was a crown of thorns that his enemies pressed into his head later in the week to mock him. John MacArthur wrote, Jesus did not come to conquer Rome, but to conquer sin and death. He did not come to make war with Rome, but to make peace with God for men. When Jesus rode in on a cult, he did two things. He fulfilled prophecy, and he communicated what kind of king he was. Look at verses 4 and 5. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, that's the people of Jerusalem, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. This was a prophecy written by the prophet Zechariah 500 years before Jesus fulfilled it here in Jerusalem. And King Jesus is not proud and haughty and, and self-promoting. He's humble. King Jesus came in peace, which he communicated also by riding in on a donkey. The Apostle Paul talks about the humility of Christ. It says in Philippians 2, it says that though he was in the form of God, he was God in the flesh, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. But he made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Jesus says earlier in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. King Jesus is humble. It's astounding. This is the Son of God. He came in riding on a donkey, a king bringing peace. He's the Prince of Peace, bringing peace with God through his own sacrifice for our sins. Verses 7 to 8, they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks. And he sat on them, he sat on the cloaks. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees. John says they were palm trees and spread them on the road. This was a way for people to honor Jesus and to show him great respect. They threw their cloaks on the road. It's kind of a a ceremonial carpet. It was something that they did for kings. And you see this actually back in 2 Kings chapter 9 where the people recognized and honored Jehu as king. They took off their cloaks and they made kind of a red carpet for him to walk on. And people also took palm branches and they put them on the road as well for Jesus. Thus the name Palm Sunday. They were welcoming King Jesus. Verse 9. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The account in Luke's gospel says, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And in John's account it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Hosanna is a word that means, please save us. But by that time, the word was probably more of a general cry of praise. Hosanna! And they called out, Hosanna to the son of David. And this is another clear acknowledgement that Jesus is the long-promised Messiah. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is the one who fulfilled God's promise to King David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God would establish the throne, David's throne, as a kingdom forever. His throne would be a forever throne through David's line. And Jesus' physical lineage came through David. And we see that very clearly In the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And Jesus is the only one who could fulfill God's promise to David to establish his throne forever. He's the eternal son of God, and he reigns. And we're familiar with the prophecy of King Jesus in the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 9. He would assume David's throne forever. We see that in verses 6 to 7. We know these verses. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom... 
to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So they were correct in recognizing and praising Jesus as the son of David. It was hugely significant. And there's yet another prophecy that Jesus fulfills in verses 10 to 11. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the people probably didn't consciously mean to tie Jesus to prophecy there. But Jesus was the fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy by Moses. Moses told Israel in Deuteronomy 18.15 that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And the New Testament writers identified this prophet who was to come as Jesus. You see that in Acts chapters 3 and 7. Jesus is the great and final prophet, great and final priest, and king. Jesus is the great prophet who is the truth and speaks the truth. God says, listen to him. Jesus is the great and final priest who was sacrificed and brought us to God. Trust in him. Jesus is the great and final king who rules and reigns. We need to submit to him. I was on Twitter this morning. Probably shouldn't be on Twitter, but I'm on Twitter this morning. I saw this. It was really great. It says, unbind the donkey for the one who would, who would be bound. Unbind the donkey for the one who would be bound. Lay down the cloaks for the one who would lay down his life. Wave your branches for the one who is the branch. Shout for the one who did not open his mouth in revilement. See the donkey uphold the one who upholds all things. So here we see King Jesus, our Passover lamb, approaching Jerusalem. Humble, riding on a donkey. It was significant not only for the people of Israel at the time, but it's hugely important for you and I in this time. A time of judgment is coming, and this is an age of grace and patience. Jesus did everything that he needed to do in his life, and especially during that Holy Week in Jerusalem, to save the souls of sinners. This is the time to be reconciled with God. The Bible is clear that you are accountable to God as your, as your creator. And you and I are sinners, and we're accountable for our sin. And he calls you to humble yourself before him, to repent of your sin and to trust in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross in dying and atoning for your sin. He drank down every drop 
of the wrath of God in your place for you. He took your judgment in your place. Trust him as your savior. There will be a time, and it could be soon, when Jesus comes back. He's coming back. And at that time, he's going to ride in, this time, not on a donkey. He's going to be riding in on a war horse. And that day will be a time of great judgment on all unbelieving mankind. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And Good Friday and Easter, Palm Sunday, these are not just nice holidays. When families dress up and go to church and gather together, they're annual wake-up calls for us. And for the world, for you and me, trust him as your Savior if you have not yet. And submit to him as king. He's a good king. He's a humble king. He's a sovereign king. He's a king who loves you and who wants your best. He wants your absolute thriving and your joy. He's a king who is for you and with you and behind you. And he is a king who is coming back. And he's going to take us all to himself. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for these enormously important events that took place in the life of our Savior. Thank you, Lord, that they are the means by which we may be brought near to God, that we might be forgiven, that we might be saved from certain judgment, that we might have a life that honors you, brings you glory, and brings us great joy. Thank you, Lord, that you have offered yourself in our place. That we have no fear of death. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone here does not know you as Savior, I pray that you would so work in their hearts, that you would woo them by your Spirit, that you would save their souls, that they would submit to you as loving King. So work in us by your Spirit as well that all of us who do know you, and maybe for many years, would be fully devoted to you as King to submit ourselves to you for your glory and for our greater joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen.